Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedekes. And now get ready to think. Welcome back to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedekes. I'm Joel Sedekes, and this is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. Today's impossible question, is the Trinity a Christian invention? Is it an an addition, probably an unnecessary one, and possibly even a logically incoherent one. After all, how can one plus one plus one equal three? Is it that kind of addition to the more simple, obvious, Unitarian concept of God? And is it true that the Old Testament teaches the absolute oneness of God? Or, on the other hand, could it be that the Old Testament points toward the triune nature of the Godhead and that the clues are there if one has the eyes to see. Today's episode is going to get to the bottom of this issue and hopefully, hopefully answer these questions for you once and for all. It's going to be a rich, deep conversation. I'm very confident of that. If you're interested in theology, in Bible study, in scripture, in apologetics, or just understanding God better, that is what we are here to facilitate. That's what we're here to do. And this conversation is really going to help with that. Specifically, my guest and I are going to talk about why it's so important to know whether the Old Testament does point to the Trinity, what passages or themes uh, possibly point to the Trinity, and a number of other issues. So uh, let me go ahead and tell you about my guest. But before I do, let me just encourage you, if you are watching live right now, please like this episode. And subscribe to our YouTube channel if you haven't done so yet. If you're watching on Facebook, best way to comment is to hop over to YouTube and uh, and watch us there. But feel free to like, follow the Think Institute, and make sure you never miss a moment of the ThinkPod or any of the other content that we are putting out. Uh, we are founded on the belief that no believer in Jesus Christ should ever get caught flat-footed when asked what or why we believe. All right. Now, if you're uh, also real quick, if you're listening on the podcast, please give us an honest five-star rating and review, and that really helps us get the word out about the podcast as well. All right, now let me tell you about our guest. Dr. Egal German holds a PhD in Hebrew Bible from the University of St. Michael's College, Toronto, as well as a BA and an MA in Biblical Studies from the University of Haifa in Israel. Dr. German has been teaching the Bible at various um, academic institutions in Israel, Canada, and the, the United States. His expertise includes Old Testament studies, Second Temple Judaism, the New Testament, Biblical and Modern Hebrew, <sighs> the history of Israel, history of biblical interpretation, and apologetics. He is the author of the monograph, The Fall Reconsidered, a literary synthesis of the primeval sin narratives against the backdrop of the history of exegesis. And now I'm out of breath just listing his bona fides. It is time to get him on the screen and have him talk about this vital topic. Without any further ado, Dr. Egal Gehrman, welcome to the Think podcast, and I'm so glad that you're with us today. Hi, Joel. It's so good to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so excited to share with you about this amazing biblical topic. It's one of my favorite topics, and I'm so glad that uh, our viewers can actually uh, engage in this discussion. So it's not only for apologists, it's not only for theologians or biblical scholars, it's for everybody. 
So guys, welcome and get ready. May the Lord bless us all. That is right. All right. Love it. Love it. All right. Um, well, I hope you guys are ready for this because um, it's not going to be a, an overly long episode today, but it is going to be packed and I'm really, really excited about it. So, um, so Dr. Gehrman, um, what, what, how should I refer to? I, I should have asked you this beforehand. Uh, Egal, Dr. Gehrman, what do you prefer? Egal is just fine. Egal. Okay. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, first of all, why is it so important for us as Christians, as believers in the Messiah, Jesus, to be able to answer this question? Why is it important to know whether the Old Testament points to the Trinity? Mm. It's a great question. Uh, I think it, uh, we have to go back to the beginning the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We know that the foundation of God's revelation is given to us in the first books of the Bible, what we call the Torah or the Pentateuch. And moving along, we see that God continued to reveal himself as the one true living God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, through his prophets. And the last uh, part of the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh is called the writings. So we cannot approach the New Testament and understanding of God in the New Testament without really grappling with the question of who God is according to the first part of the Bible. The first part of the Bible is the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament is about 80% of Scripture. So we cannot ignore this part of the Bible and just jump in right into the text of the New Testament and trying to understand who God is without actually knowing how who is God according to the uh, to the Pentateuch, the prophets and the writings, and then actually seeing that even Matthew chapter 1 takes us back right into the history of ancient Israel. It begins with the lineage of Jesus Christ, or in Hebrew, Yeshua HaMashiach, the lineage that takes us back right into the uh, foundations of the biblical narrative, beginning with Abraham, David, and then it takes us to Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. So, uh, I do believe that beginning this, uh, uh, approaching this topic from, uh, first of all, from an Old Testament perspective, really enriches our understanding of God. It deepens our understanding of the New Testament, and it helps us see the unity of the Bible as a whole, as a canonical whole, from Bereshit, from Genesis, to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Right. So it helps us understand God better, helps us understand his word better, both uh, what we're looking at in the New Testament and what God has revealed uh, in Scripture as a whole. Mm -hmm. Because as believers, we do believe that the Bible has a divine unity, don't we? Where you shouldn't... You, you you shouldn't and couldn't find something in uh, you know a teaching in the Old Testament that contradicts a teaching in the New Testament. Now th uh, things have changed from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant era um, in a certain sense, but there's a consistency in God's nature that mm -hmm. um, you know his he's not going to be one uh, you know a monad in the Old Testament and three a, a Trinity in the in the New Testament. Correct. Exactly, exactly. Just one more uh, uh, important point that I wanted to emphasize, that of course, neither in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament, we won't find the term Trinity or the term Godhead. Right. We won't find it there. So we have to come, uh, we have to acknowledge this. At the same time, it's very important for us to go back to the first part of the Bible, Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, and, and see how God rules himself. He's, he's just 
single person or we can see a compound unity of God right in the beginning of God's word. Okay. All right. Well, this is this is really fascinating. It's something that I've done some you know some study on and um I've got my go-to passages, but um I don't even want to really bring those to the table. I just want to hear what you have to say. Um so when we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, you mentioned the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Just for those who are watching who maybe aren't believers or maybe are new to Christianity or new to biblical studies, they're starting to take their faith more seriously. What exactly is the doctrine of the Trinity? I, I know there are, there are different, um, you know, understandings of it, the, the social Trinitarianism versus, uh, more classical theism, but just what is the doctrine of the Trinity as we understand it? Yeah, so uh, I would define it as follows, uh, that the one God of the Bible is one Elohim, just like read in Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or in Hebrew, Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Chad. So we see that the foundation of our theology should be biblical. It should be founded, grounded in God's word. So we see that this one true living God, the God of Israel and all the nations, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with his personal covenantal name, Yahweh, is revealed to us as one God. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that would be a concise biblical definition without getting into all the theological uh, debates and uh, um, and. Uh, different perspective on, per perspectives on the interaction between the persons of the Godhead, or the one God. Okay, okay, so that makes sense. So that's that's helpful. Thanks for laying out a, uh, an, an overview. And, and we could, I'm sure, do an entire series of podcasts yeah. on the different you know views of the Trinity and, and how exactly. it's been understood theologically, philosophically over the years. Um, but, but that's good to have a good handle on what the doctrine of the Trinity is. Now, um, is let's just cut to the chase uh uh is the doctrine of the trinity there in the old testament and you know it, it, how is it there you know like i know the, the the new testament says there's one name one name of the father son and holy spirit we're baptized into that one name when we become uh christians so is it there in the old testament and if so how is it there Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there are at least 10 major ways to see the revelation of the one true living God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the pages of the Hebrew Bible. At least 10. I, I, I'm sure there are more, but uh, let's begin. So first of all, one of God's names or the first divine name that is revealed to us in the pages of the Bible is Elohim. Elohim. That's the name God. Okay, so we see that that's the divine name that appears for the first time in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Or in Hebrew, Bereshit, bara Elohim, et HaShemayim, et HaAretz. So we see that God reveals himself in the, in the name Elohim, which appears in the Hebrew Bible almost 3,000 times. Okay, so... so and what really stands out with this divine name, that it's a plural noun. Elohim is a plural noun, and it's implying plurality, okay? So the singular form of Elohim is Eloha in Hebrew, okay? So, but we see that sometimes the Bible does speak about 
the one true living God, God of Israel as Eloha. Yes, we have we do find biblical text, but most times we do find that the Lord speaks about himself as Elohim, meaning that he is one God, one true living creator, and yet he is in plural. What would that mean? Well, and here we have this interesting Jewish debate throughout the centuries. We have rabbis on the one side, we have Christian theologians on the other side, and then there, and we see this um, hot debate ongoing for centuries. How should we interpret this divine name? And you will find this very common interpretation, uh, which would say that it's just it stands points to God's majesty that He is so great and amazing and all powerful that He is Elohim. Hmm. But it doesn't point to His divine unity, divine or compound unity. Okay. What but about the idea? Yeah. What about the idea that um, you know I've heard it. I've heard it just uh, compared to you know. Elohim is a plural noun, but it's kind of like, you know, the, the seas or, uh, the skies, you know, uh, come fly the friendly skies. Well, there's only one sky, you know, mm-hmm. but, uh, but it sort of described in a plural sense. Do you see a parallel there as well? Or is that more of a false analogy? Uh, I wouldn't opt for this analogy. I don't think it's true to the biblical text. Okay. It's true to the biblical theology. Because if we just read carefully Genesis 1, we see that First of all, we see that God, uh, we have a reference to God's spirit hovering over the waters in Genesis 1-2. So we have Ruach Elohim. Okay, so we see that there is some kind of a spiritual divine being alongside Elohim or within that Elohim who is the creator of the world. And then we see God creating the world by Ma'amar in Hebrew, by the word of his mouth. He speaks things into existence, Genesis chapter 1. And then what really makes a very strong case or interpreting Elohim as a pointer to a divine compound unity is Genesis 1, 26, where we read that God created the man and woman in his likeness and his image. And God said, let us create. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask you about this. Right, right. And, and I don't think it's a reference to angels. That's a classic rabbinic interpretation. We have right. angels there. I don't think it's the case. Because, for example, if we go to the, pro- to the prayer of Nehemiah in the book of Nehemiah chapter 9, we will see that Nehemiah, inspired by the same Spirit of God, prays to the Lord, to Yahweh, and he acknowledges that the Lord alone created the world, created humanity. Okay, okay. So that's that's an important point because I had uh, Dr. Michael Heiser on my show sometime last year, and he very much takes the interpretation that the us is a reference to the Lord and his divine counsel. And... So, and that's never set right with me, that interpretation. Uh, so it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's kind of reassuring to hear you take the other side of that. Um, mm-hmm, and, and I was, I would, wanted to make sure I asked you about that as well. Um, so, so, so far we have, we have, I'm trying to count down the list of 10 here. So we've got one is the list, the name Elohim. Um, are we, have we moved on to, Two and three yet, or are no, we still... no, no, no. It, it's still, it's still one. It's still, this is still under one. Got it. Right, okay. Right. Right. Okay. And then we, uh, I just touched on God who speaks in the plural. Okay, Genesis chapter one verse twenty-seven, where God says, "Let us make men in our image, in our image," or or in Hebrew, "betzalmenu." Okay. Then we have another interesting reference, also in the primeval history. That is Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, where God 
comes down to punish the rebels at the Tower of Babel. So in Genesis chapter 11, verse 7, we read that God speaks again in plural. Let us go down and confuse their language. Okay? So, right. and, so um, uh, there's another reference at the end of chapter 3 where, where God speaks after the fall of Adam and Eve, and he says that Adam became like one of us. Okay? Mm. So, so I don't think that uh, the case of Genesis 1 is just an, um, an independent case. No, we see some kind of a theological motif developing. In Genesis 1 through 11, where God wants to point the readers of this biblical revelation of this sacred text to his divine nature. Okay. Why can't that just be the royal we? I, I, I think I know the rebuttal to this, but, you know, kings in the old days, they sort of spoke for the state. They sort of spoke for the nation. You know, let us mm -hmm. do this. You know, we decided to do that. Mm -hmm. Why can't this just be the royal we? Okay, so I don't think it's the royal we, first of all, we, because we see a reference to the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God in Genesis 1-2, that's specifically in the context of the first creation narrative. And then when we move forward, we see that uh, there are many other indicators within the Hebrew Bible without even moving forward to the New Testament or, or patristic theology, where it's so clear to us that the God of the Bible is a compound unity. and uh, the first strong example of this would be the use of Elohim. And now we'll continue and I will unfold other points for us. Okay. All right. That, no, that, that's really helpful. So God speaks in a in the plural when he's referring mm -hmm. to himself. There's a compound unity. Okay. So that's number one. What's number two? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, number two was that God speaks in the plural. That was number two. Oh, I'm sorry. Number one is Elohim. Right, number to... one is Elohim. Okay, right. so number, number two. God speaks in the plural. Got it, got it. Okay. Right. I'm going to put these up and, on the screen as we go. Okay, that's excellent. And then I think we uh, also see a good example of God's uh, speech in the plural in Genesis, in Isaiah chapter 6, where God reveals himself um, from his heavenly temple to the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah is called to prophesy to the rebellious city of Jerusalem and the Judean nation. The Lord proclaims in verse 8, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Okay, and again, it's the same language, go for us, right? And just a few verses up, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, it's written very clearly, friends, that God speaks and he says the following. He says, uh, actually, the, the, the seraphim, the heavenly creatures, the burning ones, they praise the Lord and they say, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Tzvaot, the Lord of hosts. So we see this triune repetition and declaring great one of the greatest doxologies in Jewish and Christian liturgy. So I do see here a great indication of God's compound unity as well. Wow. So so is have we moved on to number three then? Is that is that no no no, no. it's it's still it's still under the plural speech of God. It's still okay. number two. Yeah. All right, all right. So so that's really fascinating. The the threefold declaration of the angelic beings, holy, mm -hmm. holy, holy, is not is not just reiterating it, uh, which mm -hmm. I, I think it, it is. It is reiterating, yeah, but it's yeah. not just that. It's right. it's very right. appropriate. They didn't say it twice. They didn't say it four times. They said mm -hmm. three times. And there's something very significant about that. It actually points up the fact that there are three persons. They're, they're, they're declaring each one to be holy. So God is holy thrice over, but the Father is holy, the Son is holy, and the Spirit is holy. Yes? 
Yes, amen, amen. And then it. verse 8, right, where we see that who will go for us. Right? Who will go for us, yes. That, that, that deep theological dy uh, dynamics playing out in this specific uh, uh, prophetic narrative. Okay, okay. So the name Elohim, God speaks about himself in the plural. We've got one, we've got two. Right. Let's keep it rolling. Right, yeah, number three, number three. We have the Shema, right? I already uh, mentioned the Shema today, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. And you will find many Unitarians, as well as uh, many groups under that big umbrella of, of, of uh, the Unitarian uh, theology, different to the, to the Christian cults, right? You have the, uh, the JWs, you have, uh, you have the Christadelphians, you have others, right? And you will see that they would always point you back to Deuteronomy 6.4 in order to refute the biblical truth about God's compound unity. God is one, and yet his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now I would like to reverse that argument and make us think about Deuteronomy 6.4 from a different angle. In Deuteronomy 6.4, we, uh, we, we see that how, uh, the word that is used to describe the unity of God is echad. 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 Is, that's, that's a powerful word. Right. Okay, so you will find sometimes the word echad is used to point to singular entity, but you have good examples, very strong examples, where echad is used to denote a compound unity. For example, Genesis chapter 2, where it's written that the man and his wife, they became one flesh. In Hebrew, basar echad. Wow. Echad, the same word, is used in Deuteronomy 6.4, okay? So in Deuteronomy 6.4, we see that uh, it's not an absolute unity, okay? So if the writer would have wanted to use the word for an absolute unity, it would, it would have been the word yachid in Hebrew, okay? Yachid, singular. It's also, also one, but singular one. Echad is not a singular one. Mm. So in the 13 principles of Judaism by the Ramban from the 13th century, you have this interesting statement that Ramban said that the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, is Yahid. Just consider this. He didn't use the biblical term that is used, Echad, but Yahid. Because if he would use the word Echad, it would have cast doubts on his uh, commitment to uh, classical rabbinical theology. Okay? So we see that Deuteronomy 6.4 uses Echad, one, in the term of the, there is none like the Lord, and it also points to God's compound unity. Okay, so Yahid in, in the Hebrew Bible signifies a simple numerical singularity. Okay, and it's never used of God in the Old Testament. Never Yahid. Is that right? Never. Never, as, as far as I know, as, uh, speaking of God, never. But there is a very interesting verse in Zechariah chapter twelve, verse ten, where it speaks about the future salvation of Israel, when the Lord comes back again, Yeshua, Mashiach, Jesus Christ, returns back in the glory. There is that key verse, Zechariah 12, 10. It speaks about the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem mourning over the only son. And there you have the word Yechid. Okay? And of course, even in Zechariah wow. 10, we see the divinity of Christ right in front of our eyes. Wow. So God speaks of himself in this compound unity. He describes himself as, as uh, Echad, 
Right. Meaning there's a compound oneness. And I'm glad you said compound too. I was looking for the word. It's not composite. We wouldn't say composite. Right. Whereas, cause that's more partialism, but there's a, there's a compound or, um, yeah, partialism, but there's a, there's a compound unity there. Mm-hmm. And yet mm-hmm. in Zechariah 12, 10, when it talks about they will look on the one they have pierced. Exactly. It's now right. that what, what that entails is so that actually refutes Patropassianism, which mm-hmm. is that the father suffered on the cross. Yeah. Um, right. because it was just one person of the Trinity, one Jesus. So Jesus is not triune within himself or something like that. And it wasn't the father and the son and the Holy Spirit who died on the cross. It actually, um, the Bible is very consistent. That is really, that is really incredible. The Bible yeah. is so consistent in how it describes what's going to happen. It's not, we don't have to, you know, we don't have to, to import our own theology into it. Mm-hmm. It's there. It's there. It's, there's right. one, there's one person of the Trinity who is crucified on the cross, not yeah. three. So that's very mm-hmm. interesting. Wow. Mm-hmm. 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 Exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. Um, Okay, so we've got uh, so that's number three. So then, what uh, number four would be? What? Where, where's right. the fourth way we see the Trinity in the Okay, Testament? yeah. So we see that God speaks about Himself as the Father. Okay, of in Hebrew, of only two Hebrew letters, Aleph and Bet. Those are the first and the second letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Of is Father. Is that like A B like Abba? Yes. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So we see that God speaks about himself as father at least 25 times in the Hebrew Bible. At least 25 times, okay? Um, and then we see that uh, the biblical text also uses the imagery of the father, okay? Even more times that God speaks about his relationship with Israel in terms of father and son. So we see the unity of God that his father, okay, so it, it, it implies that he that the, the the fatherhood of God reveals in is revealed in terms of his relationship to his son. Okay, so so the fatherhood language in the Hebrew Bible is a strong indicator. Okay, that the that God is a compound unity. Okay. Um, now, why couldn't that just be uh, just playing devil's advocate here? Why couldn't uh-huh. that be God is the father in the sense that, uh, you know, uh, Leonardo da Vinci was the father of, you know, the Mona Lisa. He, he you know, he created. Uh-huh. So so God, uh, let's say the hypothetically Unitarian God uh, gave birth to Israel. Israel is my firstborn son. And so if Israel is the son, God's the father, God could just be using accommodation language uh, to give us something to understand him mm-hmm. by. Mm-hmm. Why do we see fatherhood not just tied to his creatorship, creatorship, but mm-hmm. um, but actually being something that's ontologically there in his actual mm-hmm. being? Mm-hmm. Can you help me with that? Yeah, it's a fantastic question, Joel. Thank you for, for pressing on on this. So I it's actually related so well to the next point, point number five, where we see God references to the Son, not Israel as the Son, although there are references to Israel as God's Son, but it's heavenly Son, heavenly Son, echo equal in unity with the Father, not two independent gods. God forbid, it's not, it has nothing to do with pagan idolatry. Unfortunately, throughout the centuries, we've seen modified, false, counterfeit versions of the Trinity. But right. the Bible is the foundation for a biblical understanding of God's essence in unity, of course, with the New Testament. There is no contradiction between them. Okay. 
So I want to emphasize that we see the fifth point, that there are several references to a divine son in the Hebrew Bible, and this ties in into the argument of the, of the previous point, point number four, that when the Bible speaks about God as the father, it means more, it's not just the fact that he's the creator, that he's not the or not just the originator of everything, but he has a son. There is a relationship between a father and a son in the Hebrew scriptures. And even the not deny it. As a result of this, we see the, the, the development of a new theological trend within Second Temple Judaism, known as the two powers in heaven. Ah, uh, yeah. Was this who believed this? Was this like the Essenes? Where's this coming from? Oh, it's it's a great question, Joe. It's it's for it's for our podcast basically. But okay, uh, but kind of summarizing it, uh, you you find uh, different uh, streams within Second Temple Judaism. You have some echoes of this in in Qumran in the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can find echoes of this in the Enochic literature. Okay. Uh, Attributed to Enoch. Yeah. Enoch was not there, of course. He was with the Lord by the second, by the period of the right. second temple. And various apocalyptic uh, movements within, uh, within second temple, uh, the second temple period. So it's not like one group who believe it. Okay. Groups and they had various ways of describing the second power, sometimes as co equal with God, sometimes as an angel, sometimes as a semi spirit or, or a deified person. Is this is this Metatron? It it relates to right right. So so, so one uh, one stream of this tradition of the of the two powers in heaven is that Metatron uh, theology that you find in in that period and later on as well in later Jewish writings. Okay, so I've I've heard conflicting reports about Metatron. One I've heard that it was a way of describing the angel of the Lord who's sure seems to speak for God as God, accept worship as God, and yet is distinct from God, uh, at least what we now understand to be God the Father. Mm -hmm. I've also heard that Metatron was a Gnostic conception of uh, some sort of lesser God. So mm -hmm. can you, can you clear, are there two Metatrons? Are there mm -hmm. two concepts of Metatron? Okay, yes. So, so I believe there are maybe even more than two concepts of Metatron out there. Okay. So, so, so we see this interesting person, uh, this interesting kind of an angelic being. He's never mentioned in the Bible, that's for sure, in, in the canonical writings. Okay, so you don't have Metatron from Genesis to Revelation. He, he's not the angel of the Lord. Uh, I wouldn't identify him with the angel of the Lord because the angel okay. word in the Hebrew Bible is actually we are getting to point number six. Then, okay, <laughs> yeah, and I, I do believe that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, uh, the second person of the Godhead who appear to the people of Israel, okay? So you have an attempt to identify Metatron as the angel of the Lord, but I don't see any textual clues to do that in the Hebrew Bible or in the New Testament. So Metatron is just a concept that arose outside of Scripture? Did, did that come uh, from First Enoch? Where did that come from? Uh, it actually arose on the foundation on uh, of, the, of Daniel 7, I would say, when, where we see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, can approach the 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 atik um, that's the Aramaic term the um what's the term that, that is used there um the ancient of days yeah atik of days right oh, okay so so metatron, so metatron then would be the not the ancient of days but the son of man yes related to the son of man figure right right okay oh interesting or, or, yeah or 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 a, or a type of a second power in heaven so it's one power 
that is God himself, Atik Yumin, okay, the Ancient of Days. And then you have another spiritual being, another spiritual power, the Son of Man, Bar Enosh. And you see the nations falling down and bowing down before him. This is, this. are we back in Daniel 7 still? Where, where are we talking about right now? Yeah, so it's still Daniel 7. Daniel Got it. 7. And I see Daniel 7 as that uh, as that fertile prophetic ground for uh, the development of uh, Second Temple Jewish theologies of God, in one of which is the Metatron. Okay. Okay. All right. So by the second, by the time Jesus shows up and he's he's incarnate, there, man, he really did come at the fullness of time, didn't he? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a, that's a cool point, right? right he right, really right. like. Uh, you, you know, uh, evangelicals, we love to talk about, you know, reading the culture and, and speaking to the culture. God is the ultimate culture speaker because, you know, he and I, I, I uh, uh, put my own cards on the table. I'm, I'm more of a Calvinist. And so I believe that everything happens by his decree and by his foreordination. So he mm -hmm. worked it out so that the culture, the the theological um, soil, as you put it, would be fertile and mm -hmm. they would be ready because you know you know this is really fascinating Egal. I, I i'm sorry i don't want to go on a, a rabbit trail here but um i'm i'm teaching a course tonight and i'm preparing for it still mm -hmm. um where where uh it's uh, on the apologetics of jesus and jesus is constantly calling the pharisees out and the the jewish people in general for not recognizing who he is for not mm -hmm. understanding that he's the he's the son of man he's the mm -hmm. messiah and it's like well how did they you know how could they have known but but it was embedded in their culture that there was going to be this this son this co-equal to the father who was going to come and and they had different concepts of who he was going to be like but jesus comes down and he starts casting out demons and restoring the sick and healing the lepers and and you know restoring people whose hands are withered and it's like you know if this isn't the guy i i, I mean that when john the baptist himself questioned didn't jesus say look mm -hmm. at what i'm doing don't you see the prophecies are being fulfilled so it's just fascinating to me that that jesus is fulfilling these cultural expectations, some of which come explicitly from Scripture, and others which had just developed in that Second Temple Judy, Judy, uh, Ju Judaic period. Exactly, Joel. Right. It was a great summary. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to go on too much of a tangent then, but you just, it, I, this is exciting to me. This is very cool. Yeah, yeah. That's that. that that's a fascinating topic. I love. I, I can talk about this all day long. <laughs> me too. Me too. Um, so, should we get to? Number six? Yeah, number six. Yeah, number six is really related, uh, really tied to point number five about the references about the Son of God. Okay, so we know that the Hebrew Bible does speak about the uh, the Son of God, not just Israel, but heavenly heavenly power, so to speak. Okay, and some I, I can just throw in some references, like uh, uh, second the second Psalm. Right, we see that it's an explicit messianic Psalm. Right, and there is a it speaks about a divine son, right? Then we have Proverbs chapter 30, verse 4, right? Where we read the following who ascended to heaven, what is his son's name? Right. Right? Daniel 7:14, right? The son of man coming in the clouds of heaven, right? And again, we see that in the second coming, Jesus Christ or Yeshua Mashiach is coming back again in the clouds of heaven, and, and every eye will see him. Revelation 1 7. So we see again how the last book of the Bible points to 
the divinity of the son and ties it in so well within the Hebrew scriptures. So even the last book of the Bible, you cannot read it and understand it if I'm going back to the first part of those scriptures. Mm, incredible. incredible. And now we're getting to point number six. Okay. And so in point number six, I wanted to emphasize the following. We see that in the Hebrew scriptures, there are many visible appearances of God. And there is a fancy term for this. It's called a theophany, an appearance of God, a revelation of God. So we see that we have different types of theophanies within the Hebrew scriptures, okay? And a major uh, way of God revealing himself to the people of Israel was by his representative or by his angel, Malach, his messenger. And it's, that's the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord, okay? And again, it's a fascinating topic to discuss. You will find different interpretations out there who is the angel of the Lord, right? And uh, But I'm very much convinced for studying the Bible from both Jewish and non-Jewish and Christian and, 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 and liberal and theological secular perspective, I came to a firm conclusion that when the Bible speaks about this angel of the Lord, angel of Yahweh, it's a Christophany. It's an appearance of the eternal son prior to his incarnation, before he was born to Joseph and Mary, or Yosef and Miriam in Hebrew, he appeared to the people of Israel. And the New Testament testifies to the Christophanies that we find in the Hebrew Bible, okay? So we have a, uh, we have a key verse, a uh, key episode of this uh, as, as an example. Genesis 16, God revealed himself through the angel of the Lord to Hagar, who was Abraham's concubine. Right? She was the mother of Ishmael. Okay? Then we see that the Lord appeared many times to Abraham. Okay? Right? And for example, a key person, a, a key passage in this regard is Genesis 18. We see the Lord appearing with two angels to Abraham and Sarah. Then we see the Lord himself announcing to Abraham and Sarah the coming of the birth of their son, Isaac, okay? Right. So it's very clear that we that the biblical text distinguishes between the two heavenly messengers and the Lord. Yahweh himself appears right. as messenger from heaven and yet in a very human form, in a very human way to our patriarchs, right? Then we know that the Lord revealed himself as the angel of Yahweh to Moses, in the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3. And there he says that he is Yahweh himself. That he, he, he unpacks the deep meaning of the name of the Lord, yod Hey vav Hey. Okay? So those are just some examples, and I could go on. Which is really amazing here, because in John 1.18, it says, no one has ever seen God. And... You know, that that is such a conundrum because all the examples you just mentioned are examples of people having seen God. There's the Lord is talking to Abraham. The Lord is talking to Moses. And so how how can we say no one has ever seen God when clearly the patriarchs and the prophets did see God? In fact, Moses is described as one who spoke with God face to face. Well, 
it, it makes sense if you understand the New Testament distinction in terms where the word uh, theos is used for God the mm-hmm. Father, whereas mm-hmm. uh, actually Lord is often used for God the Son, Jesus. And, mm-hmm. and even though God is the Lord and the Lord is God, we, we have separate terms, distinct terms to de- describe and uh, refer to the different persons of the Trinity. So John's not somehow forgetting about all these Old Testament theophanies. When he says no one has ever seen God, what he's he's saying, he's saying no he's seen uh no one has ever seen the Father, although they have seen the Son. So they've seen God the Son, but not God the Father. Would you agree with that? Yes, yes, definitely, Joe. I, I think I think it would be uh the best way to put this the way that you just described. I think it's very much consistent with the biblical heritage that we have from Genesis to Malachi. Yeah. So you know, I see so much consistency and unity of the two of the two covenants, the two testaments, and unfortunately, many Christians, including some theologians, they they uh, detach the Hebrew Bible from the New Testament and vice versa, and they see this as a major blow to God's intention. God intended to give us His revelation, and we should not unhitch from the Old Testament. <laughs> told us to do. Yeah. <laughs> but we have to go back and search the scriptures because that's what Jesus commanded us to do. Search the scriptures, John 5 39. You you, you there. You broke up there for a second. I, I didn't hear what you said. I didn't I couldn't hear if you if you mentioned the name of the pastor who wants us to unhitch or uh, no 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 I didn't mention his name. Okay, okay. I just mentioned his words. Got it, got it. Right. Um here is a question for you. Um in Daniel's passage now. I, I think I have an explanation for this, Egal, but mm-hmm. in Daniel's night visions in Daniel chapter seven, he sees one like the son of man, or, mm-hmm. you know, he sees the son of man coming. And we believe that that is the, uh, the Lord Jesus pre-incarnate or, or actually he's, he's really seeing something that hasn't happened yet. He's seeing a vision of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but then he does see the ancient of days, uh, mm-hmm. the ancient or, or essentially ancient of days just means a very old person. That's really what it means. Um, is that, how do we, how do we understand that? Because no one has ever seen God, but he sees the ancient of days. So are we just saying, well, he didn't see him, uh, face to face the way Moses saw the pre-incarnate Christ meaning like, or like Abraham, like spoke to him face to face. Are we just going to say, well, that was a, that was a vision. It was more like a dream. And therefore, he wasn't seeing him with his mm-hmm. eyes. He was seeing a representation of him. How do, we, how do we understand that? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly right. That's that's a very important point, Joel. So I understand that in Daniel chapter seven, uh, the prophet speaks in the in a first person. Uh, the prophet says that he, he beholds and he has a vision. Okay, so we do uh, see different ways of God. Revealing himself sometimes it's okay. in sometimes in a dream. I, uh, for example, how uh, how the Lord revealed Himself to Moses in Exodus thirty three and thirty four, right? It's it's it seems that it's, it was so so real. It was not even a dream. It was not even a vision. It was like speaking face to face, and that is affirmed later on in Numbers chapter twelve and Deuteronomy chapter thirty four, right? There was no prophet like Moses. Who spoke to the Lord face to face, panim el panim. Literally, that's what the, the Bible says. Okay, so and it ties so well into what we read later on in the pages of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three. I just want to quote this verse. 
And I think it really makes sense, uh, actually, uh, helping us see um, the, the, the complexity of God's revelation in Scripture and yet their transparency. We have both, both here in, playing out. And what's the, sorry, what's the reference there again? Uh, that's Hebrews 1 1. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, for whom also he created the world. Okay, so we have also to remember what uh, Jesus said in the Gospels, right? He said a very important truth he revealed to his Jewish contemporaries. He said, Who has seen me has seen the Father. Who has seen me has seen the Father. So the Israelites, the Jews of his time, they saw men, many of them many of whom did not realize and did not acknowledge that it's not he was not just a man, but he was God who appeared as a man, okay? Who was born as a man, okay? So understanding Joel's spiritual realities that revealed by the Holy Spirit to the prophet in the Hebrew Bible actually paves the way for us to fully understand and comprehend the gospel, the essence of the gospel, the revelation of the cross, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, was for many Christians, they call themselves New Testament Christians. And by, by calling themselves that, that way, they have different associations. But I think it's not a very uh, fortunate way of calling ourselves that we are, we are called to be biblical Christians, biblical believers, Bible believers. Okay, so we have to, just like Paul said, he presented the whole counsel of God to his audience. That's why, and that's what we are supposed to do as laymen, as believers, as families, individuals, seminaries, Bible colleges, pastors. If we are called to do this, to do this, to do this ministry, we are called to present the whole counsel of God. Of God. Okay, unfortunately, nowadays we see that it's uh, very kind of uh, fragmentary. So we yeah. everything together. Well, it's very biblical too, because you think in uh, Luke 25, Luke 24, Luke 25 on the road to Emmaus, uh, when, is it four? 24, isn't it? It's 24, right. Luke 24. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's the last chapter of Luke. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So Jesus meets up with those those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. They don't know it's him. They're kept from noticing that, mm -hmm. uh, from perceiving him as he is, his identity. And he shows them all the places where the scriptures point to himself. He didn't, they, they didn't have an, a new Testament at that time, but they, they knew Jesus and Jesus opens up the old Testament. And that's the same thing that Paul and, um, according to, uh, Acts, I think chapter 18, Apollos did the same thing. He would go into the synagogues and mm -hmm. he would reason with them and, and conclusively prove that, that Jesus is the Messiah. And he, uh, you know, all he had presumably was the old Testament to work with. Exactly. And so, so this is why I love conversation because you know by having these conversations, we're probably having we're probably pointing to many of the same passages uh, that Paul, Apollos, and the Lord Jesus Himself pointed to when they appealed to the Old Testament, right? Amen, amen. And one more thing, I'm uh, recalling the conversation of Jesus of Yeshua with His disciples, with Philip, I believe it's John 14. Uh, he said, "I've been with you for so long." And you don't know me, Philip, right? He says, right. one, right? Previous text in John chapter 10. So, you know, his disciples, 
they opened their eyes, they opened their ears, they opened their hearts, and they were not uh, expected to accept some kind of a foreign, semi-pagan message, some kind of a Hellenized message. It was purely biblical, it was purely Jewish, it was purely according to some of the Messianic expectations of the Second Temple period. Yeah, uh, it's very good. Um, all right, so we are on, let's see, uh, we just covered number six then, the angel of the Lord. Mm -hmm. We've got right. four more to go, so uh, right. let's do number it. Number seven. Number seven is this. Uh, we do have references in scriptures where the Bible speaks that God cannot be seen, okay? And in other times where God can be seen. Okay, so that is... Point number seven, okay, for example, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, we read that God cannot be seen. You cannot see my face and stay alive. Stay alive. That's what God said to Moses. That's on the one hand, okay? On the other hand, okay, we see a reference like uh, Exodus chapter 24, Exodus chapter 24, where it speaks that the Israelites were able to see the Lord, okay? Specifically, Moses, Aaron, and the 70 elders of Israel, okay? It's written very explicitly in the text of Exodus chapter 24, okay? So, when we move forward to the New Testament, we see that the pre-incarnate Christ is God in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So, we see the proclamation of John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the, own, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Okay? And also Paul's proclamation, for example, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, where we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Okay, so there is an invisible God. It's God the Father. And yet the Son, who is also God, Son, the eternal Son, the only begotten Son, he is the image absolute perfect representation of God the Father and he, he was seen he was in the flesh fully God fully man as the Bible proclaims all right so so uh, so Jesus is the the image of the invisible God God cannot be seen but Jesus has been seen you know mm -hmm. that is that is it's really amazing that God, reveals himself to us because you know it's it's the the world that we're living in is physical mm -hmm. we see with our physical eyes and if we're ever going to see god mm -hmm. you know um how many people demand that they say well i need i need scientific proof i need and scientific proof really what that's asking for is sense data Eyes, ears, tongue, nose, you know, hands, mm -hmm. something I can touch, something I can evaluate. Um, and, and then if you look at, you know, John's testimony, I think it's first John opens that way. He says, that which we have seen, that which our hands have touched. And it's like, what? But we're talking about God. God is spirit. Um, mm -hmm. how could you see him? How can you touch it? Well, because he revealed himself to us in a physical way, a physical incarnation and, and fleshment. And, um, you know, if he hadn't done that, we we'd sort of i mean we we would be left with a less than full 
um, because Jesus is the full representation of who he is, we'd be left with a less than full representation of who he is. So we can just, it's, it's so praiseworthy of God to do that. Amen. Right, right. And just to um, add to your conclusion, uh, Joel, uh, Isaiah's vision of God in chapter 6, verse 1, where oh, yeah. I in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So it's very clearly, the text says that the prophet Isaiah, the 8th century Judean prophet Ishayahu, Isaiah, saw the Lord Adonai. That's what the biblical text says here, Adonai, one of the divine names of God. We mentioned at least two divine names today, right? Elohim, God, Yahweh, the personal covenantal name of the God of Israel. Now we see another divine name here, Adonai, my master, my Lord. And he beholds him here. And interestingly, in John chapter 12. Are, I'm sorry, are we, is this number eight? Uh, it's still number, uh, it's still number seven. It's number seven, number okay. Seven. Number seven, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. We see that Isaiah 6 is quoted in John 12. And it's stated there that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ. He saw Christ and his glory. It's amazing. Wow. That's what the Holy Spirit revealed to the Apostle John, Yohanan, who was thoroughly Jewish. He wasn't pagan. He wasn't Hellenized. He wasn't Romanized. He was a man of God. He believed in the prophets. And he believed in what Isaiah saw. And the Lord revealed to him that it was a vision of the Lord himself. And this Lord, with whom he spoke and talked and touched, and just like you said, 1 John chapter 1, that's the one true living God, the God of the Bible, and no other, none is like him. Amen. And, you know, this accusation that the Trinity is somehow a Hellenized concept, man, uh, so our kids are homeschooled. My wife is is uh, taking them through a lot of classical literature, and mm -hmm. they recently went through the Odyssey. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, the Odyssey and the Iliad are those foundational texts of the ancient pagan worldview that it talks about the gods and what they do. And, you know, Egal, there is just, we were struck by this over and over and over. There is no comparison between those, those capricious, uh, pagan Greek deities and the sovereign triune God of scripture. They just, they're, they're just so, so different. And, uh, you know, this idea that the New Testament is somehow Hellenized or, or paganized, uh, it's like, man, are we even reading the same text here? Because I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing these similarities. You know, Jesus is so in line perfectly with, uh, Yahweh of the Old Testament. It's it's him. It's like, yeah, if he were to take on flesh, this is what he'd be like, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, exactly. exactly. Not like Joel. Zeus. Right, right, right. Uh, Jesus, Yeshua proclaimed in John 5, 85. He said that I am he. In Hebrew, it says anihu. Yeah. Right? We know the Greek equivalent, ego eimi. But again, it takes us back not to the Greek, but to the Hebrew Bible. And many scholars have forgotten about this, even noted biblical scholars they want to see everything uh, Hellenized and, and, and Romanized and whatnot in the New Testament. Yeah. They forget that we have to go back to the Hebrew Bible and then we have the Second Temple Jewish context. And only with those two, we can figure out what's going on in the New Testament. Otherwise, we're going to uh, follow some uh, false 
contra-biblical, contra-historical paradigms that would never lead us to the full uh, understanding and comprehension of God's truth in the Bible, okay? And, and you just mentioned those uh, Greek myths. And, and I believe that all those deities, so-called deities playing out like Zeus and others, Apollos and so many in that all Greek pantheon, of course, it's all pagan, but I do see that spiritually it all echoed, it all echoes what we learn from the Bible about spiritual beings, fallen beings, known to us uh, as fallen sons of God from Genesis 6. Right. And in the New Testament, they're, they're, they're known as evil spirits or demons. Yeah. So yeah. those mythologies, they are demonic, essentially, because they describe spiritual powers uh, in opposition to the Lord, in opposition to the one true living God, in opposition to the, to the Jewish people, in opposition to the Bible, in opposition to the church. And that's why the Roman Empire was, uh, was so heavy in persecuting early Christians, because early Christians, they were so Jewish in their articulation of their faith, okay? And we see the spiritual cultural uh, war, the battle between the biblical faith and the pagan world, just like we see today in our culture, even here in America. Hmm. That's takes place in our days yeah that's yeah that, that's a that's a really good point um and we could definitely go off on that tangent but uh what's number eight dr gammon uh yeah the eighth yeah. way that we can see the the mm -hmm. trinity in the old testament yeah so we, we have nearly 400 prophecies related to the coming of the messiah and again i'm not saying that the 400 it's the exact number you will find different scholars giving different numbers more or less okay it's not an absolute number but we have many, definitely many explicit prophecies and implicit typologies of the coming Messiah, who is seen as fully divine. That's what I want to emphasize. Not just a, a descendant of the house of David, not just as a man who would come to redeem the Israelites from a foreign empire, from any uh, um, bondage like Egypt or Babylon or Greece or Rome. It's very clear that in the Hebrew Bible, the Messiah, Hamashiach, Melech Israel, the King of Israel, is definitely seen as fully divine. Let me give an example. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6, we have a very long name of the coming deliverer of Israel. And a compound form of this name, part of this name is Mighty God. In Hebrew, El Gibor. El Gibor, friends, is not just a mighty God. In the book of Isaiah, 1 chapter 4, in chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, we read that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is called El Gibor. So by linking chapters 9 and 10, we see that the prophet proclaims the birth of a son, a deliverer, a king, and even the rabbis agree that Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 is definitely a messianic prophecy. It's very clearly stated that he's a mighty God, he's El Gibor. And chapter 10 reveals to us what would it be? Is, is he just a powerful man described like an El, like a God? Or he's an essentially divine, eternal, of a heavenly origin? And we see this proclaimed so powerfully in chapter 10 that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is El Gibor. And the word choice is not a coincidence, friends. It's not just that the prophet would have uh, invented it. No, it's one of God's names. And the divine son, the Messiah, 
This messianic prophecy is powerfully proclaimed to be El Gibor. And that's the, and why I emphasize this, because you will find, for example, uh, people from uh, different uh, to the Christian cults, like the JWs, right? And they, they, they agree to call Jesus mighty God, but they say that he's not the almighty God. But that's a real fallacy in their understanding of scripture, hmm. blinded and brainwashed by their leadership from Brooklyn. The Bible is so clear that Jesus Christ is the God Almighty, and He is the mighty God, and He's El Gibor, the Lord in the flesh, Yahweh in the flesh. Yeah. Uh, one more example, Jeremiah chapter 23, and 6. In Jeremiah chapter 23, there is a direct messianic prophecy that the deliverer will come to Israel. It's a messianic prophecy. The king is called the branch, Semach, and he's called Yahweh our righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. And here we have the full divine name of God. The tetragrammaton, yod Hey vav Hey. It's very clear that he is the God of Israel and for whom we can attain righteousness. No other way to get to be righteous. All right? So those are just two examples. And there are more uh, pointing directly to the divinity of the Son. That's point number eight. Okay. Okay. Very good. All right. So... Um, uh, so the, the prophecy is related to the fully divine Messiah, number eight. Uh, let's keep moving. What's number nine? Yeah, number nine. We have 94 references in the Hebrew Bible to the Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim. Okay? Ruach Elohim is an expression which in the New Testament most often is the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of the Father or the Holy Spirit. Okay? So we see that these divine names of the third person of the one God is in full accord with the revelation of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, okay? And here again, we have a myth that we have to debunk. And that's the myth that many, many Christians believe, and they say, oh, in the Hebrew Bible, there is no Holy Spirit. In the Hebrew Bible, there is no activity of the Holy Spirit. And that's false. The Holy Spirit is there because he is God. How God cannot be there and then he just showed up in the New Testament. Right. See again, that the Spirit of God, the, the, the uh, comforter, the teacher, uh, is, the, is the third person of the one true living God in unity with the Son and the Father. One God, not three gods, but one true God, the Lord. Amen. Uh, okay. The Holy Spirit is there in the Old Testament. The Son is there in the Old Testament. Clearly, the Father is there in the Old Testament. Uh, let's bring it home. What's number 10? The 10th way that we can see the Trinity being taught. Uh, mm -hmm. Real quick, let me just say one thing that I really appreciate about, mm -hmm. um, you know, what you're, I, I, I didn't know what you were going to bring. I didn't know you'd have 10 different ways and each one with so much support. And I'm not, I'm not blowing smoke at you here right now, Egal. Uh, mm -hmm. At, you know, I've I've known about the the Genesis. Uh, let us make God or let us make man in our likeness. Uh, I've known about some of the references to the Holy Spirit. Of course, the um, the the Son of Man and and the the Angel of the Lord. But man, to see them all together like this is so um, it's so impressive. Meaning, it it just impresses the mind with the clarity of this teaching and the absolute unity between the Old and New Testaments. They're, exactly, Joe. It, which is exactly what we ought to expect, isn't it? But if God wrote both, we ought to expect to see consistent teaching in both. But mm -hmm. it's just um, it's just amazing to see it all laid out. So I, I appreciate this. I really, really do. Excellent. Um, 
So what's number 10? Yeah, so point number 10, I would like to point to three main passages in the Hebrew Bible where we have three persons listed in unison. So we have all of all those three passages are in the book of Isaiah. Okay, so we know that Isaiah is commonly known as the fifth gospel, right? Or some call it kind of a, a prophetic a prophetic gospel, okay, although the word gospel is not used, but essentially the gospel is proclaimed in all the books of the Hebrew Bible. So let's begin with the first passage, Isaiah chapter 48, verses 12 through 16. In Isaiah 48, verses 12 through 16, the Messiah speaks and mentions two other persons. Let me read the text for you. Listen to me, O Jacob Israel, whom I have called. I am he. Anihu, just, just like Jesus proclaimed in the Gospel of John, Anihu, I am he. I am the first and I am the last. My own hand laid the foundations of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summon them, they all stand up together. Come near me and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret. At the time it happens, I am there. And now the sovereign Lord, Adonai Yahweh, has sent me with his spirit. Isn't it amazing, dear friends? In this prophetic text, the Lord speaks, the second person, the Son, the Messiah, speaks about sovereign God, sovereign Lord, as God the Father, and his spirit, Ruach, Ruach, Ruach Elohim, the spirit of God. So we see the unity of the one God, the one God of Israel. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What an amazing revelation given to this prophet of the 8th century. Yeah. And then in Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah chapter 61, we see that the Messiah speaks again in the first person. So in chapter 48, he was speaking in the first person. Chapter 61, he again is speaking in the first person. Interestingly, Isaiah 48 is not quoted in the New Testament. But on the other hand, Isaiah 61 is quoted in the New Testament in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus walks into the synagogue, and he reads in the city in his hometown in Nazareth from the great scroll of Isaiah. Isn't that an amazing revelation that we have here? And, and we see that in chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Okay, so the Messiah speaks. The Son, spirit is on him because the Lord, again, here is the name of the Lord, Yahweh, has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me you see, in Unison chapter 48, he has sent me. So there is a sender and there is a one who is sent, right? And again, in line with the, the previous Christophanies, where we have the Father sending his messenger, his angel, his Malach Adonai. And again, the use of angel, I just wanted to emphasize this point, is not to point that he's a created being. No, Jesus Christ is not an angel. He is God himself. He created all the angels, <laughs> right? We have to understand this. But he was a messenger of the heaven. He was the messenger of the Father. Yes and amen. There is no contradiction here. Okay. So in Isaiah 61, that's the second passage. We see that he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Again, and, and then the, the text continues to unfold the different messianic uh, titles uh, and um, um, callings of this king of Israel. And then the third passage is Isaiah chapter 63, verses 8 to 10. 
It says chapter 63, verses 8 to 10, where we see that God said, Surely there are my people, sons who will not be false to me. And so he became their savior. That's about God the Father. And then it continues. In all their distress, he too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. Wow. So there is a God who is the savior, and then there is an angel of his presence, Malacha Panim, okay, who saves them. Wow. He's, he's absolutely divine. He's not just one of the messengers. And then continue down. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. How can some angel or spirit redeem the people of Israel? Gaal is the ultimate term for redemption. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Wow. <laughs> this is amazing. God's right? the Savior. The, the messenger from from the Lord is the messenger of God is the Savior. And yet in the process of, of this salvation or subsequent to it, they're grieving God's God's people are grieving his spirit. Well, how, mm-hmm. how, the the spirit is clearly God. If they're 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 these are God's people and they're um grieving well well oh, you know what let me ask you this. How do we know that God's spirit, I mean obviously I believe it, but how do we know that the spirit here is not a reference to an angel? Mm. Uh, it's very clear. It says, yeah, they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. Okay. Okay, and then it's written, so he, the Holy Spirit, he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. The third person of the Godhead is the Holy Spirit. He is not an impersonal force, like some false teachers teach. Right. He is the Lord. He is God. And he fought, he fought against the people of Israel when they rebelled against him. Whereas a created being, an angel, would not have the kind of authority to do that. He would not have the authority to turn against uh, God's people, to fight against God's people or anything like that. Mm-hmm. A- mm-hmm. Angels that are created beings, they are sent out on missions, but they don't uh, get grieved and then mm-hmm. uh, you know, become autonomous somehow. But God yeah. himself, he does exercise that, that sort of authority over God's people. Exactly, Joe. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. Um, all right. Well, so there we have it. I mean, that's really, really compelling, Egal. Ten ways to see the Trinity in the Old Testament. Um, it's it's very clear. I, I think uh let me ask you this. If people wanted to learn more about this topic, is there something that you've written or something that you would recommend where people could go and Read, watch, listen to mm-hmm. to more mm-hmm. on this. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've uh, written a couple of articles on this topic, and they are all available on my website, yesodbiblecenter.org. Yesod Bible Center is my online Bible school. So I invite you, our dear friends, to check out my website, and uh, under resources, they can find articles. In two languages, English and Russian, and they can choose the English and they can see the different articles. Specifically, I have an article on the divinity of the Son, uh, the Son of Man. And yeah, exactly. That's the website. Uh, and um, it's very um, easy to navigate there and find that. Also, I have a teaching here, a seminar uh, in the middle of the page, uh, actually, uh, two, uh, one sermon and one seminar. Uh, one is on Isaiah 7, the Messianic prophecy, okay? 
the, the, uh, the Emmanuel prophecy, right? And there I have also a seminar on the divinity of Christ, which I presented in one Messianic Jewish congregation right, right here. Yes, those are the two videos. And uh, interested, uh, if you're interested, you can uh, check them out as well. And the articles are available under uh, ministry and then the, the articles there. And you can find out more. And uh, you are more than welcome to uh, subs subscribe to my newsletter and my YouTube channel, as well as check out uh, my online Bible courses. And I have one, a very exciting summer course. And that's a biblical Hebrew course, biblical Hebrew 101. So if anyone is interested in learning biblical Hebrew, guys, you're more than welcome to join. You can uh, see the promo video right here, and then you have the link where you can sign up for the course. Excellent. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me. Excellent. Well, Egal, thank you again for... Uh well, thank you for those recommendations. And, uh, you know, w you and I are definitely going to have to talk because uh, you're, uh, what, what we're trying to do with the Think Institute, I think there's a lot of um, overlap or, or just a lot of similarity to the way we're trying to go about things. We've, we've got our courses that we're teaching and, um, you know, maybe coming at things from a slightly different perspective. Uh, in in some regards, although I don't know, because you and I we haven't really gotten into those conversations yet. But um, I would love to talk with you again about this. I know we we mentioned we were going to do that, um, and uh, you know maybe we can pick another theological topic and uh, and have you come on. I, this this whole realm of the Second Temple Judaic period is so hot right now. I mean, you've got, I already mentioned Michael Heiser. I know, uh, you, you know, a lot of his stuff is very popular, but um, you know, there's, I don't know, it, it, in a lot of ways, maybe I'm crazy, but it feels, I feel a lot of camaraderie with the, the, the believers that lived during that second temple Judaic period where they were waiting, they're wait, waiting with eager expectation for the Messiah to come. And there's all this political tyranny. And it's like, it's like, man, Hey, I, I can relate to you guys. You know, I'm waiting for, for my Messiah to come back. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're watching political tyranny happen all around us. And so it's just, it's very, very, um, crucial. I think that we understand that period and, uh, look, we don't know how much time we have left. We might have another million years. I, I don't know. I don't think we do. Um, but we need to be getting the word out and, uh, we need to be able to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that is holistic, in a way that is rigorous and biblical and robust. And, uh, I think your work is really helping people to do that. And hopefully this conversation will help people do that as well. So, um, uh, Dr. Gammon, thank you so much for your time. And um, I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Thank you so much, Joel, for inviting me. It was a real blessing, the opportunity to share this with you and with our uh, viewers. May the Lord bless you all. Uh, happy Shavuot. Happy uh, Feast of Pentecost. That's right. And um, may the Lord keep us grounded in his word. Amen. All right. Uh, thank you, Dr. Gammon. I'll talk to you later. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you guys for watching the this episode of the Think Podcast listening. Again, if you're listening online, please give us that honest five-star rating and review. I don't understand exactly how those algorithms work. I just know this. If you like, if, if you give us a rating, a five-star rating and uh, write us a review, somehow that helps Apple know that people are listening and 
um, and, and like us. And, um, and somehow that, that helps to get the show out to others. Now, if you're watching on YouTube, we are so close right now to 1000 subscribers. And that's like this goal that I've set for myself, for the ministry, nothing magical about it. I think at that point you can start to monetize, but, um, I haven't really thought much about that because we're supported by our ministry partners on the back end. And, um, so, but you know, a thousand subscribers would be nice to get to, um, and would just sort of boost the profile of the Think Institute, the Think Podcast, and the Think Institute Network. So, if you haven't subscribed and you like this content, please give us a like. Also, if you dropped a comment or a question today and we didn't get to it, um, I'm sorry. I do want to have Dr. Garman on again another time, and maybe we can get to those questions then. Normally, we do have a Q&A time at the end, but I'm a little crunched for time today. So uh, without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up. And uh, let me just say this. If you'd like to partner with the Think Institute, you know, this is how I make my living. This is this is what we do. This is um, uh, my wife and I are support raising missionaries through an organization called Crew Campus Crusade for Christ. We are non-woke. We are gospel centered. We are uh, we strive to be biblical and glorifying to Jesus Christ in all we do. And um, those who preach the gospel should make their living off the gospel. And that's, uh, that's, that's what Paul says. That's what we're trying to do. So if you're interested in supporting us, you can do so by going to give.crew, C-R-U.org slash 1018841. Give.crew.org slash 1018841. That's our giving page. You can support us there. And um, listen, that's about all we have for you today. As always, remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the road of your spiritual journey. I hope you heard something helpful. I know I certainly did. And until next time, I hope it makes you think. 